Hello and welcome to People, Places and Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we'll be talking about international reputation and foreign policy and some other issues along the way. This is our third episode and today we're focusing on leadership and the way in which leadership intersects with, uh, with the uh, reputation of nation states. And to start us off, Simon, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the uh, way you factor leadership into your um, good country work and where you, how you think uh, a good leader uh, plays into a country being what you term a good country. Yeah. Um, well, what I'd like to do is is to um, have a quick look at uh, a little project which I've I've been doing together with a team of uh, volunteers, mainly in the Netherlands, uh, for the last year or so, which is called the Good Leader Index. Um, any similarity to the Good Country Index is purely coincidental because the Good Country Index is is based on data. It is, as far as I can make it, an actual objective measured appraisal of how much good countries do outside their own borders. The Good Leader Index, on the other hand, is unashamedly a personal viewpoint. It's a, it's a, it's editorial opinion. And what we do is each month uh, we get together with these students from all over the world. They're mostly international relations students, and we have a discussion about uh, which world leader, and that usually means president or prime minister or monarch, but it can occasionally be a corporate leader or, or other. Um, which of them seems to have done the best job of harmonizing his or her national and international responsibilities and uh, and who's done the worst job or the, the the most the most visibly poor job and uh, that unfortunate individual we call the ungoodest leader we don't want to call them bad because that's a that's a value judgment this is just a just a description really and it's quite it's quite good fun it's a very interesting perspective i find on leadership because you're, you're avoiding the normal questions, right? The normal questions about good leadership are, do they leave anybody out? Are they fair? Are they just? Are they measured? Are they populist or are they motivated by, by, by real principles and so on and so forth? And all of that's great, of course. But the big question for me is, are they good at making domestic policies at least do no harm, but preferably do some good beyond their own borders to so the rest of the world and the rest of humanity and the rest of the planet? Because that's the only way humanity is going to make any progress against the, against the grand challenges. Right, and, and from, from the point of view of international reputation, mm. it's actually making a difference to other places, being relevant to other places, that actually contributes to international reputation. Or at least that's what we've both found in, in our research. Yeah, I mean, my research has certainly shown this, uh, this huge correlation uh, between how much good uh, countries and their leaders do outside their own borders and the degree to which the rest of the world then respects that country. And then, as we know, there's a huge correlation in turn between the amount of respect people have for countries and their likelihood of doing business with that country, of investing in it, of going there as tourists, as engaging in diplomatic or cultural or social relations with it. And everything is tied together in, in that respect. So but who's showing up for you as, as, as goodest leader uh, at the moment, well, we're a, we're a few months behind, but there've been some there've been some interesting picks this year. I was just um, I was just looking at some of the picks we came up with, and and uh, I, I noticed not for the first time that our pick for the ungoodest leader 
in our summer edition, July, August, was Abiy Ahmed, the prime minister of Ethiopia. And he'd actually appeared as the goodest leader a few months earlier. So this is quite unusual um, to come in at the, at the polar opposites. Um, he, he, was, uh, he was goodest uh, when he was making peace with, with the neighbours in Eritrea and, in fact, received um, a very a rapid Nobel Peace Prize um, for that activity. But here he is back again as the ungoodest leader uh, because of how intransigent and, in a sense, even hostile he's being towards other neighbours, Egypt and Sudan, over the business of the uh, Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, right. the GERD. And, and this is a fascinating diplomatic question because Ethiopia controls the waters of the Nile upstream of Egypt and Sudan. And so the tables are turned for the first time in, in centuries, in millennia, that suddenly Ethiopia has the upper hand and it can control by building this dam and by releasing or not releasing the water, the very survival of the Egyptians and the Sudanese. And he seems to be making a bit of a deal out of having this power over them. Where does that go? What can? Well, it's very tricky, you see, because where it where, where things are stuck at the moment is that uh, he's he's basically refusing to give any future commitments to Egypt or Sudan about how much water he's going to release to them uh, in a given year which uh, to me as an outsider seems quite unreasonable because how can they i mean Egypt depends on the Nile for 95% of its fresh water supplies and consequently most of its agriculture and and it, its very livelihood um Sudan almost as much and so it seems to me that um Ethiopia has got to be sympathetic to this and has got to, at the very least, uh, work with these neighbours instead of just waving this powerful instrument over them, which is what it seems to be doing. And I, and I think I know why this is happening. It's because the dam has been framed uh, by Abiy Ahmed and his predecessors ever since it was first uh, mooted uh, decades ago um, as a grand national project. Uh, tied up with the Ethiopian self-image and national pride and dignity and standing in the world and all the rest of it. Quite unnecessary, really, because if it was going to happen, it was going to happen anyway. And a lot of Ethiopians themselves have invested in the building of this project. And so I think that what's happening now, reading between the lines, is that he's discovered that he can't even give an inch in conventional diplomatic terms to Egypt or Sudan without it looking to his population as if he's losing face. And so he's being sort of obliged uh, to be incredibly intransigent and undiplomatic and unhelpful. Of course, it didn't help that Trump weighed in on the other side and said that Egypt should blow up the dam and he was going to help them or some such yeah. nonsense. I, I'd, I'd given ungoodest leader of the month to Trump so many times that I just couldn't do it again. Where are the counterexamples? Because you know, some people would say that, of course, a leader's got to defend their own people, and that's what people people expect. Do you see examples of leaders who are genuinely thinking about others as they put together policies and are providing a, a kind of a, a a leadership towards collective security or collective well-being? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can uh, we can we can find one almost every month uh, in the same month. The goodest leader. Uh, was Norbert Röttgen, the chair of the Bundestag in Germany. And he was the one who stood up uh, for protesting vigorously against the Russians' poisoning of Alexei Navalny. And he was the one who said, we, you know, we have no choice but to reconsider the Nord Stream uh, pipeline between Germany and Russia. Now, that's 
that that's classic good leader because it would harm Germany uh, to cancel that pipeline. But it's a much in the longer term, it's a much better leadership behavior than the other politicians in Germany who were sort of saying, well, it's not such a big deal. And of course, we chastise Russia and of course, tut, 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 but not actually prepared to pursue any any hard measures to indicate that they really disapproved of it. So, you know, that's him being brave. Yes, and this issue of uh, linkage, I I think, is very important because unless these issues are linked, where's the incentive not to behave in outrageous ways? Right. Absolutely. I mean, we even included very, very controversially, we even included Boris Johnson, who's the Prime Minister of Great Britain, as the goodest leader in June 2020, even though he's a notorious populist and a notorious nationalist and the architect of Brexit. But simply because during in, in June, he was the leader who announced that uh, Hong Kongers would be able to claim British citizenship if they were uh, persecuted by the, uh, the, the 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 British nationals overseas, there are about three million of them in in the in the territory. They would be able to to claim residence in the United Kingdom if they wanted to, and I think that that was a really good example of good leadership. I don't question his inner motivations. I think it's presumptuous to try and guess why people do things. What matters is what they do, um, and this was very good news for 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 those um, for those three million Hong Kongers. And Boris Johnson could have paid a serious political price for it, because in the post-Brexit age, for him to be saying we're going to welcome in a large number of foreign migrants to our society could make him very unpopular indeed. So he demonstrated that in that moment that he's at least capable of not being a populist, of uh, of doing the right thing. The trouble is he swings to and fro with every uh, every day that passes, and you never yes. quite know yes. what is. That's right. <laughs> But, you know, that was good. And, 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 you know, this is not a lifetime achievement award. This is just what they did that month. You know, COVID-19 has been an immense leadership challenge and it's really put uh, world leaders through their, through their paces. And one of the things that struck me last year was this meme that went around. Uh, I saw it through Forbes magazine, but it was in a number of places asking, well, what do these countries with low COVID figures have in common? And it would have a picture of each of their leaders and all of them were female. So the question is, is good leadership in the era of the pandemic gendered in some way? And how do we factor gender into thinking about leadership? And maybe we could go beyond this even. And, you know, in this in these conversations, we've been talking about the need for cooperation to become uh, the central focus of international relations just because of the scale of problems in the world. And are these uh, leadership styles associated with female leaders more open to cooperation than the ultra-competitive leadership styles associated with hyper-masculine leadership? In fact, it's maybe easier to go at this question from the point of view of the, we've maybe got a clearer view of what the strong man, le- the strong man leader looks like, the hyper-masculine yeah. leader, uh, than we have of a cooperative female style that's still quite novel on the international on the international stage. But what do you make of it? Can you tease those apart? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I actually made the comment in 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 my book that um, the good country philosophy is in the in the anthropological sense um, more female than the current. Um, international culture of governance. There is a sort of single culture of governance worldwide. 
irrespective of which political ideology leaders come from. The way that leaders face problems of international relations is, broadly speaking, a masculine one. Um, It's go out and fight the foreigners and get the best deal for us. In anthropological terms, that would be regarded as male. Um, It's not a comment on men and women. It's just a male-style approach. It's um, uh, praising strength um, and regarding it as an asset um, and, and so forth. And it, it has been pointed out to me, and I've noticed it myself, that the, the good country approach, uh, where you're aiming for cooperation and collaboration before competition, is, is more female. And that seems to me to be um, uh, pretty uh, sensible, really, because since uh, our species is made up of roughly half men and half women, it would make sense if the culture of governance reflected that distribution of, of values. And it, and it just doesn't. In fact, what we find is that domestic governance is more likely to have feminine traits, depending on the culture you're looking at, than international governance. And so we've got this very classic, actually very sexist scenario where countries may well behave in a more feminine way at home. But as soon as they go outside and start dealing with foreigners, they become very male. And that's what sets us up for belligerent international relations. Uh, zero-sum calculations and all the rest of it. So we have to be tough and uncompromising when we're looking at the international community. Why? Because other countries are potential uh, rivals or adversaries. And when we're at home, we can afford to be nice some of the time and caring and nurturing and gentle and sharing and all the rest of it. And this is all so screwed up, you hardly know where to start, do you? But, you know, this is the thing that's, that's got to change. On the other hand, I do get a little bit impatient with the modern human habit of identifying absolutely everything in terms of the category of human being that does it. You know, to say this is about the leaders being women. And I often think that this categorization of behaviors, instead of looking at individuals, uh, is just a piece of laziness. It's just so much easier to say she does it that way because she's a woman. And then you've got your your set answer for half the human race. He does it that way because he's a man. And there's your set answer for the other human race. And you think like that because you're white or because you're black. And you say it like that because you're whatever you are. And Mm -hmm. this is not to diminish the differing needs or the different treatments that groups get. But there is a risk of us becoming very, very lazy and using that as a shorthand, an excuse not to look into motivations in a more thorough way. Yeah, and it, it occurred to me looking at these at these uh, the particular states that were identified through this meme, which would be Denmark, Finland, uh, Germany, uh, New Zealand, of course. It was pointing to places that were uh, liberal democracies of a particular kind, and it may be that the the ability of a state to be addressing gender inequality in governance is one of the uh, things that also helps when you're dealing with a social problem like COVID. So these are the, you know, what you say, correlation is not causation, that uh, female leadership correlates with uh, other signs of being a a progressive and self-reflective country and that it's missing in other places, which also are selecting um, strongman uh, leaders. 
Yeah, and Margaret Thatcher was a strong man up there with the best of them. <laughs> she was indeed. I was thinking about that. But yet overseas could be, you know, British diplomacy in the 1980s had some uh, had some successes and uh, uh, examples of cooperation. Actually, I think with, with Thatcher, it goes to this business, a, a, a point you've made about um, the relevance of countries and relevance of leaders. And it was always difficult for me going overseas, traveling in Eastern Europe, and people would say, oh, we so admire your wonderful leader, Margaret Thatcher. And, you know, I had to learn that there is one Thatcher for international audiences, and our domestic experience of her is not really relevant to, to foreigners. It's a historical footnote. And to allow her, in other people's minds, to have a greater meaning, which was her confrontation of the Soviet Union, her leadership in uh, other dimensions of, of world affairs. So I have to know when to just shut up and that what happened to the school system, what happened to the miners in the UK in the 80s is not at the form, forefront of someone's mind in Hungary or Poland or uh, Latvia or Lithuania. Absolutely right. And in fact, um, just to underline that point, my research has showed over and over again that the vast majority of people, even when they've heard of the leader of another country, don't know which political party they belong to. Oh, that is interesting. And, and why should they? because politics is a domestic issue. So yes, of course, your hyper-educated German will know for sure that Boris Johnson and Margaret Thatcher are, are both members of the Conservative Party and are Conservative politicians. But generally speaking, people really don't know. They become leadership figures in the broadest, blandest, most neutral sense. And, and there is no question that if you're uh, lucky or smart enough as a country to regularly produce these big international figures, that really does something for the image of the country. And, and some countries have done it occasionally to prove that it can work. I mean, uh, you know, where, where would South Africa be today if it hadn't been for the recollection of Nelson Mandela, a gigantic figure on the international stage? You take a country like Brazil, for example, uh, the world's uh, admiration for Brazil waxes and wanes depending on, they tend to have internationally prominent leaders. So, you know, when it was uh, Lula da Silva, who was, uh, who was being cast by the international co community uh, for being an international hero. Everybody admired Brazil. And now it's Bolsonaro, who is cast by the international community as being the populist strongman, with some justification. Brazil's image uh, has gone downhill, not only because of that, but partly because of it. And um, I uh, co-authored a book many, many years ago called Brand America, in which we devoted a big chunk of one of the chapters purely to the figure of Benjamin Franklin, who's perhaps the best historical example of this, a man who's, uh, who personified the United States to such a degree in France when he was the ambassador in France that he actually made the French change their side, change sides in the, in, in the war. Because the, the French said, and it was recorded at the time, if a man has these qualities, is if a man of these qualities is American, then we surely must revise our views of the Americans. Well, I think I find Franklin just a, a fascinating example of, of, of somebody working as a diplomat, because if you look at what the French said about him, they, they were really noticed that he listened to them, that they expected that he'd come and tell them about science or uh, something wonderful about the United States. About the United States, but he didn't. He listened to them. He wanted to hear what they had to say, and they were so impressed that he was open to a two-way 
uh, exchange. We could still do uh, well to, you know, study how he approached things. I think. Absolutely, and 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 uh, and and I'm I'm glad you mentioned listening because uh, you know to your credit, uh, this is now widely recognised as a component of good public diplomacy and good diplomacy. And I think before you started saying this, it hadn't really been noticed how absolutely fundamental it is. I think, didn't these people have mothers? You know, how, how however did we get to a position where people thought it was a great idea to communicate without listening first? Yes. But, you know, one of the other things to stay with COVID for a bit, one of the things we saw was that there were countries where ideas of leadership were split where people would say, well, there's a bad central government, but there's excellent local government. For example, the person in charge of Tokyo received an excellent press, even as uh, Abe was getting a bad press. Or uh, in the US, uh, governor of New York, uh, governor of California were both built up as being really good leaders. Now, coming out of this, I wonder the extent to which this is about media coverage and not a not sort of a, not an objective assessment and how we factor media coverage into thinking about good leaders yeah i'm always nervous about the role of the media in these kinds of conversations because um it's it's often overstated and particularly of course uh, by governments that feel they want to change the way that their country is regarded they seem to imagine that, that the image of a country is a media problem and therefore requires a media solution. The reason why uh, we are not uh, fully rated or why our leader is not fully rated is because the media don't do a fair job of, uh, of describing them. And therefore, if we want to fix this, we have to compel the media to do it differently, more honestly, more truthfully, more positively, or whatever it is. And then cue the PR agency who allegedly will um, somehow miraculously force the world's media to talk about you differently. And all of this is very messed up, and there isn't a great deal of evidence for it. Um, media studies observed um, many years ago uh, that people's perceptions of countries tend not to be prim primarily directed by the media. In some cases, they are. I mean, if it's a country that simply nobody had ever really heard of before it became noticed in the, by the media because of something that's going on, Yemen is a great example because up until the point where it was being bombed by the Saudis and others, nobody ever thought about it. All that people now know about Yemen is in the context of it being uh, of it being bombed. And so the media does control the Yemen's image. But most other countries, it really, really doesn't at all. And if the if the media starts changing its tune about a country, people will just change the, the media that they consume. They won't change their minds. Uh, and in my experience, 99% of the media is in the business of reflecting people's stereotypes and prejudices, right. not challenging them. And that's the, that's its business model. You sell newspapers or you sell advertising on your website by reflecting people's prejudices about countries back at them. And as long as you continue to do that, you will have a business. If you start challenging those stereotypes, you will lose your customers. And that's why the media doesn't do it. Maybe then the purpose of the positive local leadership uh, during the pandemic was to show that there were alternatives to Trump. And now there uh, is no need to have a positive leader in uh, New York or a positive leader in California. The media have dropped those people. New Newsom is being recalled. 
uh, with a lot of uh, emphasis on him, his having broken uh, COVID rules. Uh, Cuomo in New York is in the midst of a, of a, a Me Too uh, type scandal. And yeah. th- th- these people who were astonishing media darlings last year, to the point with Cuomo that there were some people were talking about bouncing him into the Democratic nomination for, for, for president, just an, an extraordinary Cuomo mania. Who who would want to be a politician? I mean, <laughs> no, I know, honestly, I know, I know. It, it's a question you've got to ask, isn't it? I, I I'm sorry to change the subject ever so slightly, but I can't resist saying <laughs> it. With every week that passes these days, I just ask myself, how do we get these people? Well, you know what, Simon, so how, you know, um, maybe this is like the Vatican and exorcists. Well, the Vatican has a rule that anybody who wants to be an exorcist should be immediately disbarred from being an exorcist. and um, Because their motivations are impure. That leadership should be forced on people against their will, and then they should be released and banished at the end of their term. As some of the Greek, uh, some, sorry, some of the Italian city-states would... Uh, would have that kind of that kind of rule, but surely it should be a contraindicator if somebody really, really wants to be a leader. They they shouldn't be let anywhere near mechanisms of leadership. Well, maybe we should go right back to the earliest human civilizations and have sacrificial leaders like the Fisher King. Oh yes, where oh, where yes. their their lot is to be sacrificed once they've finished leading. I think that would sort out the motivations. Oh, I like that. Sorry, I, <laughs> I, I find that so fascinating to study. So <laughs> don't don't worry. I've no desire. I had to sacrifice uh, uh, any leaders in my life. <laughs> that, that we have to think then about what the right role of uh, a leader is. And mm. you know, let me put it to you this way. Mm. When we look at what's necessary for effective cooperation, one of the, 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 the number one thing that uh, analysts identify is a vision. And vision has to come from a leader, or it has to be projected by a, by a leader. That's what leadership is. And if you look at the three great crises of the last hundred years, World War One, World War Two, uh, the Cold War, the solution to those crises was the articulation of a vision, mm. not that was so attractive that all the allies agreed with it, but that was so attractive that adversaries could think we're better off with that system or with those ideas, it'll be okay for us. There's something for us in that world. But who can articulate that today? In the past, right, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, President Kennedy, President Reagan were able to do that. Is it even plausible that an American president could provide global leadership today? Who do you look to or who should we look to to answer that kind of challenge? Who is that sort of credibility even possible today? Oh, I think it's always possible. You can't lose hope in that. I think today's visions are somewhat quieter. I certainly think, going back to our previous conversation, that they're more feminine in many respects. I think Jacinda Ardern um, has a vision, which is, uh, it's a it's a quiet vision. It's a, a collaborative vision. It's not a it's not a get lost all of you vision of the of the, the the sort that we associate with male leaders, but it's one that many many people around the world quietly buy into and are quietly influenced by. But we have to be very careful with visions because you rightly say yes, it was a vision that put an end to the Second World War and the First World War and all the rest of it, but it was also the vision of a single man who started them. And uh, Hitler had a vision. A vision. Stalin had a vision. Pol Pot had a vision. And this is why I think the the Europe the, the story of the European Union. 
has been a story of uh, a, the deliberate choice of dull technocrats uh, to run government because we are in Europe understandably mistrustful of men with visions uh, uh, because we can see where it leads us. And, uh, and I think we all in our taste uh, have, since the Second World War, uh, erred towards uh, the, the, the technocratic approach because we feel we don't need visions, we can handle our society, we just need people to do a good job of managing them, which is, the again, the opposite of populism. But we've, we soon forget, and now you can see people with visions, like Viktor Orban, again coming to the fore, and these are powerful and dangerous visions. The, the, you know, there's a difference between an exclusive vision and an inclusive vision. Yeah. And a part of the problem with the European Union is it forgot to keep articulating its vision. And I think people lost touch with what that organization was all about, what it was supposed to be doing. And they became too bogged down in their own authority and forgot to explain themselves. And, for, and you know, to, again, to go back to something we were talking about earlier, they forgot to listen. Yes, I, I tend to agree with you there. I mean, the way that I've always said it about Europe was that it did itself out of a vision because its foundational purpose was to prevent the French and the Germans from fighting any longer um, and by extension, the, the broader European neighbourhood. And it did that so effectively. What it forgot to do was to replace that with a new vision. And what I've always said about the European Union is that we we live today in an age where we're spoiled, by, spoiled for choice. I mean, there are so many gigantic challenges that the European could and arguably should take on as its as its uh, its raison d'être. You know, migration has got Europe written all over it. It's one of the world's greatest challenges. Um, Europe is particularly implicated in it. It's particularly responsible for it. It would benefit particularly strongly if it fixed it, and it's got the experience and the resources to do something about it. And that's just one. Climate change is another. And, uh, you know, I've said it for years, what the European needs to do is it needs to have a big conversation where it says, now, what's our next task? And to commit itself to that task, because otherwise, without that, it is indeed just a bureaucracy. But maybe there's no harm in that. Alexander Stubb, the ex-Prime Minister of Finland, is very good on this point. He often talks about how um, we constantly expect the European Union to be more than it really is. And what what it is in in his framing uh, is a crisis management unit. It only comes to the fore when there's a crisis, and on the whole, it does that job fairly well, and that's all it's for. I think the European Union is so significant that we really need to give it a whole, you know, room to breathe and a whole podcast. But uh, that's all we have time for today. Uh, I'm still Nick Cull. I'm still Simon Anholt. Let's do Europe next. And thanks so much for listening.